Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes, before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. This past week, I had a copy of Dr. Frank Smith's personal reminiscence on a visit to the congregation in Rhode Island and what seemed to be his first meeting with Dr. Young. This took place in the late 80s. Some of you know Dr. Smith. Most of you will know of him. He, he wrote a, uh, a history of the PCA uh, church. He comes from that sort of background, and so you can imagine how the worship of a PRC congregation struck him, although from what he wrote, he seemed to be uh, well convinced of the regulative principle of worship and its distinctive applications, and yet perhaps had seen it uh, not so very frequently uh, performed. He speaks much of the simplicity of the worship. He even calls it uh, old-fashioned. He said if uh, to the eyes of people who are used to other things, it must seem very old-fashioned for them to worship in the way that they do. But with this text before me... um, There was a quote in it that really struck me as he reflected upon the simplicity of the worship. And this might be a bit counterintuitive. What he says is that the most impressive fact about the service was its awesome solemnity and the sense of the transcendent. Most of you will not have had much opportunity to spend time with Dr. Young or even to sit in um, 
a service in which he is ministering. But uh, he does seem to live with a sense of the transcendent and holy presence of God. And when he preaches, a sense of the transcendent is communicated. He lives with the sense of it and he communicates it in the words that he speaks to others. I remember being likewise impressed by his ministry. It is a duty belonging to all of us to foster in ourselves a sense that we live in the presence of this transcendent and majestic God. Ministers must live with a sense of that presence and be able to communicate it. And a congregation, every member of a congregation, must have lively faith, believing what the Scripture says about His majesty and the fact that we live before His face. And spiritual senses to discern it. There's an immediate problem in the sense that fallen nature has no sense of God's spiritual majesty. We suffer from what the scriptures call blindness. We can't see it. We can't sense it. We can't detect it. Even though it is real. Indeed, it is ultimate reality. And it's altogether true. Uh, In our carnal condition, we are able only to appreciate carnal things. And we relate to physical uh, things. And we have uh, no more apprehension of spiritual things and the divine majesty than a dog might. Or a stick. Or a stone. We are blind to these things. It's very interesting as I uh, look around at contemporary evangelicalism and even in my own uh, experience in the midst of it, it does seem as if there is a seeking after the transcendent. And yet there's there's something quite disturbing as well. When When they bump up against it in God's holy ordinances, the reading and preaching of God's Word, <coughs> prayer, the singing of the Psalms, baptism and the Lord's Supper, when they bump up against it, they still don't discern it. And they continue their searching. They devise all sorts of carnal ordinances that they hope will foster in themselves uh, a sense of the transcendent and even become a vehicle of contact for the transcendent. And so you'll watch e- uh, evangelicalism and the, uh, the out- there's a desire to revive the outward glory of the old administration. And what do the scriptures teach us but that this is childish at best? We're taught in the, in the scriptures that God gave those carnal ordinances to a church that was under age. And the purpose of those very physical and very tangible ordinances was to take children and to instruct them in spiritual things. But having attained to spiritual things as men, to leave behind the childish things. 
the church after the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ and the conclusion of revelation through the apostolic ministry is supposed to be a church mature and able through the simple and divinely ordained ordinances to enter into a sense of the transcendent. Come in contact with His Majesty. But yet we find a church still very much unable. And so we say at best it's childish. And perhaps it's an indication that we, considered collectively, are still yet largely carnal. We're unable to commune with that great Spirit in a spiritual way. And we miss it when it's in front of us. A sense of the transcendent is very much on the face of our text. Remember here we have a spiritual view of the church. What we see, what we see around us is, um, is mere uh, appearance and phantasm when compared to the view that John receives. John sees the spiritual reality in spite of all of the earthly appearances. And what he sees is the majestic God enthroned in the midst of his people, surrounded by a great company of priest kings, all present to do this great king's service, and surrounded by ministers. These four cherubs who stand ever ready to go and to come at his bidding in his service. We have been continuing in our reflections on these living creatures, these cherubs. We have had opportunity to observe that they do not appear to be angels like their counterparts in Ezekiel, but rather men. They sing the song of redemption as redeemed people, a song that's not fitting for an angelic mouth. They are part of the church, the redeemed of the Lord. And yet, distinguished from the body of the church, the 24 elders, we find here, and we are growing in comfort in asserting that they are ministers because we found that they call the people of God to worship the way that ministers do. They are part of the church, and yet in some way distinguished from the 24. Not quite the same as those. Their position is closer to the throne, with eyes fixed upon the throne and upon their charges, the 24 priest kings, so that they might care for them. And we found that unlike the angelic cherubs, they only have completeness altogether. They have a fullness of gifting only when you put them all together. So the angels of heaven have a fullness of gifting individually for those things to which God has called them. The uh, cherubs of Ezekiel, each one have four faces, but these each only have one face and only have the four faces when they are put all together. Today we're going to make a bit of an advance in our text. Beginning in verse 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. 
In and of itself, this is a relatively simple description. Each one of these uh, living beings, living creatures, has six wings, although it's hard for me even to express what might be fully intended by the language of about him or around him, but it's probably enough for us to understand that they have these six wings. This is different. Uh, this is another point of difference with the cherubs in Ezekiel. Turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it. And out of the midst thereof is the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And everyone had four faces and everyone had four wings. And their feet were straight feet. And the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. And they four had their faces and their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they forehad the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side. And they forehad the face of an ox on the left side. They fore also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. You probably immediately detected the difference. These cherubs are said only to have four wings. And the uses for these four wings are tolerably plain on the surface of the text. Two of these are for flying, for uh, going at the commandment of God, as it will later be said in the text. God commands and they go and they come and these wings are foregoing. You also see in that they uh, lift their wings up and touch one another that these uh, angels do work cooperatively and in concert. They move as a single body. This uh, denotes something of their readiness for obedience and their swiftness in that obedience. With two of their wings, they cover their bodies. And this is probably pretty easy for you to understand. Although angels have no sin, they do stand humble before the Creator, for they are just creatures. And there is an infinite divide and chasm that cannot be crossed between the Creator and the creature. And so even these great angelic beings cover themselves themselves 
in humility before the great maker of all things. There appears to be a, another text coming more sharply into view. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 6. You will know this very famous text, the calling of Isaiah. Beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. The one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. In Revelation 4.8, we have two points of immediate uh, correspondence. Like the Revelation cherubs, these have six wings. And they have the same cry in their mouth. Holy, holy, holy. And uh, in substance, not too different than the rest of the song that will be sung. The whole earth is full of the glory of the Creator. We are told something more here about these six wings and their function. Again, two uh, for flying are very obvious to all of us. There's a readiness to do and a swiftness in the fulfilling of the commandments of God. But the others are probably not too difficult for, for all of us to understand. With two, they cover their faces. There is a sense of uh, reverence that they stand in the presence of the great king of all that is. There is a fear. Moses does a, does a similar thing, if you remember, when he comes into the presence of God. It's not unusual that men will, will bow their heads rather than looking full on at the divine majesty. And these great beings do a very similar thing. They, in humility, um, draw their wings over their eyes is a certain sort of shamefacedness. And again, this is not because of sinfulness, but their recognition that they are but creatures in the presence of the Creator. And with two, they cover their feet, which is uh, uh, very much, if you understand my meaning, uh, another way of saying the same thing. They cover their feet as those that are sensible of their creatureliness in His presence. Here we, um, if I might say so, we find that the, the vision in uh, Ezekiel is not too different than this vision. Except here, Isaiah has seen four wings to perform the duty of a recognition of the difference between the creator and the creature, which were done with only two wings in Ezekiel. In Revelation, our cherubs have these 
six wings. And if someone were to argue that uh, since the description is simple in Revelation, in other words, there's no description of what the wings do. It simply said that they have them. If a person were to argue that this was nothing other than readiness for action, a speediness in fulfilling the commandment of God, you, you would get no great objection from me. However, in conjunction with the holy, holy, holy of the seraphs, I do believe that, that the Isaiah text is in view and being evoked here. So we, not, uh, we do not unfairly consider the six wings in Revelation in the light of what we are taught more specifically about them in uh, Isaiah, ministers who are sensible of the divine majesty, well aware of their creatureliness and for ministers, their sinfulness. They stand humble before him and yet always ready to fulfill their duty. And from this, uh, let us take a use Let us cultivate a spiritual sense of God's transcendent majesty. As we saw in the Isaiah text, this is really symbolized in, in two ways. The covering of the face, a sign of humility in the presence of God. Again, something that we are, are, are well familiar with. Even in, in the halls of great kings in ancient times, frequently people would approach the king with lowered eyes. Uh, as if they wouldn't uh, offend him by looking directly upon him. So they would look down uh, at the ground. That was not uncommon in some cultures. And here you have a, a similar sort of thing in the presence of the king of kings. They cover their faces. They uh, dwell in his presence in godly fear and reverence. And they also acknowledge their creatureliness in his presence by covering their feet. And what we see in uh, the angelic beings is something worthy of our own imitation. Uh, every month, uh, we are all present for a public session meeting. The session meets uh, week by week, but all public business, we uh, try to bring before the public assembly uh, so that the congregation always is informed concerning what's going on uh, in the activities of the session. But when we meet and convene that court, we stand in the presence of this great king. And everything about our holy religion is intended to reinforce this in our mind. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 82nd Psalm. Psalm 82, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, he judgeth among the gods. 
just a, an interpretive point. The language of gods is sometimes attributed to uh, judges of various kinds. Because in the judgment, they are supposed to represent God in the mind of God to uh, the people. And we find that they are uh, held by God accountable for what they do when they stand in his place and in his stead. They are not supposed to render their own verdict according to their own mutable and imperfect opinions, but simply to be conduits for God's judgment. And for his voice. And God here says that he stands in the midst of these judges. He is not seen with the physical eyes. But he is truly present. Verse 2. How long will ye judge unjustly? And accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not. Neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said ye are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men. And fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. So here God is uh, sitting upon his throne in the midst of the judges. And he sits there in judgment upon the judges as to whether or not they are doing his will and those things that are in keeping with his mind. We know from the scripture it's not in keeping it's not in keeping with the mind of the Holy One to countenance the wicked in their wicked way. Nor is it in keeping with his mind to uh, leave the poor and the needy and the defenseless without defense. And so he complains with these particular judges that they have not represented his mind. And he said, I have said that ye are God. You will die like men. A terrible thing. A thing to make a man tremble. When we convene that session meeting, this is the reality. And the only question is, do we have the spiritual eyes to see it and to discern it and to conduct ourselves accordingly? We see in the 82nd Psalm that misconduct. Uh, carries with it a terrible price and uh, judgment. We are uh, supposed to uh, comport and conduct ourselves in a manner that is fitting for uh, our position and the fact that we stand in the presence of the Most High and that He is reigning in His court. He is to be reverenced and He is to be obeyed. And his mind is to be observed in all things. And so let the officers of the church cover their faces in the presence of the Holy One. And let all the auditors and hearers also cover their faces. This is the truth of the matter. We think also of our 
congregational worship, I hope that you believe that God is present in our midst. Or we meet to no purpose. We have not come simply to uh, entertain ourselves or to pass the hours. We have come to commune with the great God of heaven. And if we would understand uh, the actions of worship rightly, we will understand it in this way. You must exercise faith in your spiritual senses so that the man standing before you might disappear. Because when the scriptures are read and the word is faithfully preached, God is speaking to us. Christ is taking up his teaching mantle. And it is no different, no different than when Jesus walked in Palestine and preached with his own audible voice. He is speaking to his congregation through his appointed means. We also see how important it is that little word, faithfully, when the word is faithfully preached. And you begin to have uh, some more understanding of why Christ would uh, hold his ministers to such a strict account so that his people might hear his voice. He has a great zeal for his sheep. And then, graciously, he invites us to respond to him in our prayer and in our song. So here we have something of our uh, respective roles set before us. It is part of my job, my vocation, to attempt to communicate a sense of the holy as we deal with holy things, the holy word of God. And the holy voice of Christ. But that is not enough if the communication is to be full and complete. You must develop spiritual senses. And exercise your faith so that you might discern the spiritual reality. Going beyond our worship, this is also part of our daily business. I know that it's probably common for all of you to have the habit of sanctifying your food to your use by prayer. I hope that you do the same thing with the hours that you are afforded. And in this way, cultivate a sense that you live in the presence of God. He is transcendent, high, and lifted up. But we are also taught that he is ever-present even to the meek and the lowly, or as it says in the Psalms, even to the one who is seated upon, upon the dunghill, the lowest of all possible places. The high and holy one condescends and he takes notice of us in our lowliness. We must day by day cultivate a sense of this. And as we do, it will keep us in the way of righteousness. If you have a Christian heart beating in your chest, you will desire to walk with Him. That will be your chief joy and delight. You will cultivate a sense that that is the reality of your life. And this will keep you far away from sin. 
which interrupts and hinders the sweetness of that that communion. So let us, whether it be in private or in our worship or even sitting in our courts, cultivate a sense of the holy. And it would be a good thing if we would also add in our prayers that our magistrates would also cultivate a sense that they stand in the presence of the judge of all the earth when they make law and render judgment. The 82nd Psalm applies to them as well. And to even contemplate such a thing is terrible. Make a man tremble. A second use, uh, briefly, but certainly the most obvious use of our text. Let us obey readily. Two wings are given for flight. God has given all of us natural capacities and abilities. And if we have converted hearts, he's also given us spiritual gifts and graces. If he, as the giver of all good things, has given these good things to us, let us use them for his glory and in obedience to him. And in particular, think of your response in your, uh, to preaching. Are we aware of his presence and his voice in our assembly? You remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He said, you did well in that you received our word, not as the word of man, but as it is, the word of God. Are we aware of His presence and that we're listening to His voice? Then if you have a Christian heart, you've also been given two wings to immediately fly into execution of the things that you have just heard. And let us not delay and put off our obedience, but obey in fear and trembling, knowing that we live before His face. Let us pray together.